charming world and all who inhabit it. Jump out of bed, mix up a breakfast for my favorite pet snail. Full steam ahead, the SSI I'm ready is about to set sail. This cat day couldn't get much better, but it keeps on trying. I'm on my way somewhere. There's a Krabby Patty that needs frying. And who's the lucky sponge in the mirror who is living his dream? Who's always extra careful with his dental hygiene? Gary, it's me. Happy just to be here in the world renowned. Bikini Bottom, how I love this town. Bikini Bottom, when the sun shines down on a beautiful Bikini Bottom day. Good morning, Patrick. Oh, is it morning already? Hello and welcome to Broadway Radios. This week on Broadway for Sunday, May 13th, 2018. Happy Mother's Day to everybody. Yes. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks, Broadway, Broadway Select, in many of the places. Good morning, Peter. Good morning. Good morning. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. So uh, before we start, uh, I should have warned you guys that I was going to do this, but before we start, I just want to say congratulations to one of our listeners, Kerr Lockhart, who has got a reading of his uh, show tomorrow, and it's always great to be in touch with uh, listeners who not only listen to us, but also are putting on their own work. So uh, break some legs tomorrow, and a bunch of us will see you there at the, uh, at the reading. Um, last week, we started off with the first part of our take on the Tony nominations. Uh, so we're going to return to the second part this week, and we'll start off with the best performance by an actor in a featured role in a play. We have Anthony Boyle, Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, Michael Sarah, Lobby Hero, Brian Tyree Henry in Lobby Hero, Nathan Lane in Angels in America and David Morse, Eugene O'Neill's The Iceman Cometh. So, Peter, what do you think about this? I'm not surprised at all to see any of the nominations uh, there, but um, I feel bad for uh, Chris Evans, who, after all, um, does a tremendous job in Lobby Hero as well. And uh, I was rooting for him, certainly, <laughs> partly because I know he was an actor when he was a kid uh, at the Concord Youth Theater, where I've seen a lot of interesting things in my time. Um, I, I never saw him, I, I have to admit, but um, that's a wonderful organization in Massachusetts that's produced a lot of people who have been very, very able, uh, if not successful, uh, to the point where Chris Evans is. So, uh, so I, I, having heard of him for a long time from various friends and relatives saying, you know, that Chris Evans kid is really good. Um, I was very interested to see him because I don't see movies and I didn't know his movie career. And I thought he was terrific in Lobby Hero. And I just feel bad that the other two who are marvelous as well, don't misunderstand me, marvelous. Uh, I, I just really felt that um, he belonged in the 
that category as well. But again, you know, it's such a tough year. And the thing is, um, I think we've mentioned this. Isn't it interesting that Nathan Lane should be in the featured category when that same role was in the lead category when Angels in America was first done mm. and that the Andrew Garfield um, character was in the supporting. And yet, and it does feel that way. It really does in this production. So um, I can't quarrel with that. I'm, of course, the thing that most interests me this year is uh, the Harry Potter factor. I won't be surprised if Harry Potter sweeps virtually everything it does. Of course, this is a, a, a category where it's going to be hard for it to sweep. But um, the the one that people seem to talk about more than anybody else is um, Anthony Boyle. And uh, I, I hear his name mentioned more than anybody else in the show. And um, so um, I'm, I, and I understand why. He's really terrific as Scorpius. So, uh, so a solid category. But again, one has to mourn uh, the fact that um, there are so many other people who could have been in it. Yeah, it, it, it's hard. <laughs> for for new people, uh, for for new plays to uh, crack categories because um, of revivals, but mm. for me, David Morse has done an extraordinary job, an extraordinary beyond belief job in the Iceman cometh uh, with this where did it go feeling in his. Uh, all through the play. And I love that he has his hands in his pockets for much of the time because it almost seems like he's hiding something. Because one of the conflicts in the Iceman comment is the fact that a young man shows up and implies that um, David Morse's character, Larry Slade, is his father. And um, we have to keep guessing whether he is or not. And uh, Eugene O'Neill does a very good job of keeping us guessing, but David Morse does a wonderful job of keeping us guessing as well. And he's the most realistic man um, on that stage uh, who uh, really knows that, um, no, he's not going to go out tomorrow and get a job the way Jimmy Tomorrow does, that he knows he's not going to uh, be able to succeed. Uh, there were people in that bar who one of them is afraid to even cross the street. Right. Uh, but he's aware of, of his limitations. He knows what drink has done to him and uh, and we know that he's a smart guy because at one point he makes a reference to carbolic acid and again David Morris does all this so well with the sense of regret and yet he's not fooling himself the way the others do so um, a very strong category indeed very strong yes I'd say I'd say one of one of the toughest categories of all, uh, although there are a few of them. And uh, I completely agree about Chris Evans. I, I think I said when we discussed the show originally that I was so impressed that he, uh, his Broadway debut was in a, a featured role uh, and not a, a showy title role, as, uh, as certainly he could have done if he wanted to. And he just excellently fit into this incredible ensemble of, of these other actors to, um, you know, uh, whom all of whom have also been nominated. Um, Michael Sarah is just terrific in it. And Brian Tyree Henry, uh, I think that it would have been interesting if the three of them went up mm. against each other. Another interesting thing to me is that uh, <laughs> Chris Evans is one of the stars of a film, which is one of the apparently most amazing phenomenon a phenomena in film history uh this avengers movie which has broken all kinds of records i'm not sure if um we have had a previous case of an actor 
appearing on Broadway at the same time as being in such a tremendous hit film. And that certainly part, lar- partly and largely accounts for, I think, the tremendous number of people waiting at the stage door every night. I, I, I told the story about how when I saw Lobby Hero, I had trouble getting out of the theater because people were already lined up uh, to wait for him and the rest of the cast because Michael Sarah is also a, a, you know, a movie star and, and all of these actors are known to one degree or another. Um, Anthony Boyle, uh, certainly all of us on this podcast agree about the excellent of his performance as Scorpius and um, Nathan Lane. I think maybe the way you f- uh, you feel that way, uh, Peter, about him being uh, featured now, whereas uh, Ron Liebman was uh, in the Best Actor category, is because I suppose maybe Roy does less in. Uh, Millennium approaches somewhat less, and that story starts to focus a little more on the other characters, especially prior. Uh, whereas, of course, when the when Angels in America, America originally premiered, it was only the first uh, part, and then the second part was added later. So uh, maybe perhaps that has something to do with it. Uh, David Morse, I had heard uh, all the accolades of his performance and did not get to see the show till last week, and I certainly agree with all of them. So absolutely one of the strongest categories, one of the toughest there is. I don't know if I mentioned this during the Harry Potter review section or other discussions about it, but uh, I also thought that Anthony Boyle... Um, when he goes back to the UK, could um, star as Evan Hansen. He seemed mm. to have that, those same qualities of Evan Hansen. Um, oh, yeah? Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and, and I didn't also realize they have a, a nice little uh, feature article on Anthony Boyle. Uh, he looks totally different as Malfoy than he does in real life. He's huh. got uh, a big shock of black hair and things like that. And Malfoy, he's wearing a wig, and it looks great. It doesn't look like a wig at all on stage. I would imagine. Yeah. So. Oh, by uh, the way, I, I misspoke. I, I, although she probably should have been, and Belle Poli did not uh, get a nomination for her role of Dawn in Lobby Hero. But it's it's such a great, <laughs> such a really great cast uh, in an in an excellent play, and everyone should see it if they get a chance. Yeah, I totally agree. And there's a, a handful of times in the last uh, couple of months that we've we've have intimated that maybe there should be an ensemble award because uh, uh, certainly Lobby Hero uh, and Three Tall mm. Women are shows mm. that could have really uh, competed <laughs> competed for the ensemble award. There, very true. Uh, uh, next category, Best Performance by an Actress in a Featured Role in a Play, Susan Brown, Angels in America, uh, Noma du- uh, Dumanzweni, uh, Harry Potter and the Hearst Child, uh, Deborah Finley, The Children, Denise Goff, uh, and Angels in America, Laurie Metcalf, uh, Edward Albee's Three Tall Women. Peter. Well, um, I it, I don't think uh, that Deborah Finley is uh, expecting to uh, get up there and make a speech, uh, partly because her show is closed, but partly because the other people in that category are so overwhelming. Um, Noma Dumezwini, I've been told, uh, the accents on the second syllable, ah. magnificent as Hermione in, in Harry Potter. And um, the one I feel that... Um, has another uh, great chance is Denise Goff 
and I was so glad to see her in there. I was surprised to see Susan Brown, who I uh, who I thought was good, good, yeah, fine. But um, I was surprised to see her in there. No surprise whatsoever to see Laurie Metcalf in there, who has completely reimagined the role in a way that I wouldn't have even thought possible. When Marion Seldes did this part, she wasn't the least bit funny. And um, Laurie Metcalf is funny without ruining the play without not at the expense of the play but she has found the humor and and we've all felt when we've taken care of a relative who is totally difficult and intractable and just drives us crazy and (laughs) so she she really does a phenomenal job in finding the humor in a situation like that and i defy you not to go and laugh even though you may not want to laugh at times, but you have to laugh in the way she's playing it. None of this was the case with Marion Seldes' play, who played it wonderfully and just in a completely different way. It may be the greatest example I've ever seen of two actresses being spectacular, but in completely different ways. I can't even remotely think of anything I've seen mm. where it's happened in this way. So, um, so I'm very glad that she wound up there. And um, while it is true, James, that uh, an ensemble award would be really fine for Three Tall Women, because Alison Pill is, um, is, is quite fine, too, uh, I'm... <laughs> I won't be sad or surprised if indeed uh, Glenda Jackson wins in her category and Laurie Metcalf wins in this category. But um, Denise Goff, whoa. And um, I wonder how many people will be influenced uh, to vote for Denise Goff in a sort of, well, because they had seen her earlier um, out of St. Anne's Warehouse doing People, Places, and Things, where she was phenomenal as well as a drug addict. So uh, that might pull a few ticks in, um, on, on the ballot in, in her favor. Uh, people may not just vote for her for giving one spectacular performance, but two, the other one, of course, not being eligible because it was, to say the least, off-Broadway, way out in Brooklyn. But um, it's quite a competitive category. And I have no problem with um, at least three of them being in it. <laughs> Michael. Yeah, um, Deborah Finley, Finley was excellent in The Children by Lucy Kirkwood. But it and, and it, I really love that play, but it's long gone and it was a limited run. So uh, merit aside, I, I don't know if she's up for the running. I, I suppose uh, Denise Goff and... Susan Brown may cancel each other out. Uh, people s- say that that happens sometimes with with uh, multiple nominees from shows, uh, but we'll see. Uh, Susan, I thought really was very good as a, a number of roles. Hannah Pitt, Rabbi Isidore Chemowitz, Henry Eth- and Ethel Rosenberg in Angels in America, um, whereas Denise Goff just does an outstanding job in, in the single role of Harper Pitt. Um, Norma Dumezwini, uh, I agree that she's, uh, she provides a lot of the emotional glue in yeah, good Harry, point. yeah. And Harry Potter. And it is, uh, you know, it's, it's a long two evenings, but, um, so you need someone to uh, kind of hold it together. Not that she's the only one who does that, but there, but just the way her character is written and expertly played, I think it has a lot of that effect. And Laurie Metcalf, uh, we discussed this before, Peter. I'm so happy to hear you say that. I uh, I did not see the the original production, and I'm glad to hear that you think it works just as well, if not better, uh, with all of those laughs in place. Mm-hmm. 
So uh, she, uh, Laurie Metcalf, also um, has the benefit, aside from her great talent, of being in a, a huge hit television show, <laughs> uh, Ro- the Roseanne reboot. So that may be uh, something very much in her favor. We'll see. Noma Dumezwini. Noma mm-hmm. Dumezwini. We should all practice that name because we're going to be saying it a lot. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Yes, and I'm sorry. I think I said Norma. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you got the I'll tough on, part right. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I'll pass on your apologies to her. Um, so uh, something we didn't talk about. Let's go aside for just a minute. Uh, do we think Harry Potter and the Cursed Child will tour well? Oh, wow. That's a very good point. Well, it? you know, um, one of uh, my friends who saw the show, believe it or not, was somewhat disappointed in the sets because they expected to see more actually actual constructed sets uh, of of a detailed uh you know, uh, locales in the in the Potter lore. Uh, but it does not have that by any means. The the actual set pieces are actually really quite few and uh for the most part it relies on wonderful projections and incredible lighting and and really really special special effects so in that sense um i think uh it might tour well but then there is the flying uh which is an issue i'm i'm sure uh in some houses uh so that actually just occurred to me i don't i don't know uh if that will be an issue a big issue in lots of places i will say this i did hear that there was a lot of talk that's it talk about um the colonial theater in boston being reopened with a sit-down production of Harry Potter. Well, I was just going to say, I could see a hand, four or five sit-down productions around the United States in large cities, but uh, will it actually, you know, hit those those touring voters for the Tony Awards? Uh, are they going to look at this and say, is this going to come to the Orpheum? Is this going to go to the Fox in right. Atlanta? Yeah, uh, yeah. That's a good point. Um, and, On the other hand, they may feel if they vote for it, that it will come. If you yeah. vote, they will come. Yeah. <laughs> but are there right. subscribers going to uh, pay for two sets of tickets to the same show, you know, parts one and two? Will this uh, mess with their their subscriber plans and things right. like that? Yeah. And yeah. does, you know, do people really want to, I, I, you know, I, I guess it's a big question mark. And I would think that, given how good the show is and the reputation precedes it, that yes would be the answer. But I don't know. I, I guess that's a question for the road voters. Hmm. Noma Dumezwini. No, I got it wrong. Du- <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's I it. it. Okay. <laughs> Everybody practice that. We're going to be doing that a lot. All right. Uh, best performance by an actor in a featured role in a musical. We have Norbert Leo Butts for My Fair Lady, Alexander Gemignani for Rogers and Hammerstein's Stein. Whoops. Hammerstein. Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> oh, kidding. Oh. Kidding. Oh, all right. Carousel. <laughs> Greg uh, Gray Henson for Mean Girls. Uh, Gavin Lee for SpongeBob SquarePants, uh, Ariel Satchel for the band's visit. So, Peter. Well, um, I, I was a little surprised with some of the people who got into this category. Um, be uh, I will say that Gray Henson to me um, should get an award for the millionth time um, a, a young gay man has been played in that 
conventional way. I, I, I thought he was nothing remarkable whatsoever. Um, Norbert Leo Butts does the job in My Fair Lady, so um, fine. Uh, but I didn't think he was exceptional by any means. And um, Al Gemignani is a wonderful actor, and he certainly does the job in Carousel. But if people have had problems with Diana Rigg being nominated, and people have, uh, I've noticed that, um, I'm, I would imagine they'd have problems with Mr. Snow being nominated because it's such a tiny part, too. He's wonderful in it, and his delivery of Where's the Fire, if you haven't seen the show, you may not know what I'm talking about, is is, is top-notch. But I, I wouldn't be surprised if Alexander Gemignani, when getting the phone call saying you got a Tony nomination, said, nah, come on, this, is, this isn't nice that you're calling me and pretending that I got one. I wouldn't be surprised. So... Um, and uh, the two the two guys certainly um, who uh, were no surprise to be in this category were Gavin Lee for SpongeBob SquarePants um, because he does that dance while he has to deal with two other legs, and um, and Ariel Stachel for the band's visit who's very effective in um, not a great role but uh, a good enough role that uh, he should be in it. So so it's another way of saying if this wasn't a great year for musicals, Michael. Yeah, I think. Um... I, I, I'll say again, I think the direction and concept of Carousel um, hampered a lot of the performances. And I, I did not think that Alex Gimignani was so special in this. Uh, and I don't think he got a laugh on Where's the Fire when I saw it. Um, but I've loved him before, so it's it's not him. I think it's the direction. Uh, I um, uh, can't be comprehensive in this category because I have not yet seen My Fair Lady. I was to have seen it this past week, but Dame Diana Rigg was under the weather one night, so they rescheduled me. Um, so I'm looking forward to see Norbert Leo Butts as Alfie Doolittle. Um, I think I, I somewhat disagree with Peter about Gray Henson as Damien in Mean Girls. I, I thought there was um, a, 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 an extra sweetness to his performance that uh, sometimes you don't see in in these uh, a lot of these stereotypical uh, conventional gay uh, character performances. Also, I think the um, you know the very contemporary spin uh, of the material allows him to play it somewhat differently than you know characters we can think of from the past. Uh, some of them in the boys in the band. Um, Gavin Lee, it's always so great to see him on on stage. And I th- thought he did a wonderful job in SpongeBob. Um, and Ariel St- Stachel, Stachel uh, in the band's visit. I think um, that that is one of the most uh, prime examples of an ensemble show. So I, I thought he was very good, uh, uh, but perhaps didn't necessarily stand out from any of the other, uh, several of the other actors who might have received uh, featured actor nominations. All right. Uh, In fact, um, we really should talk about uh, that. uh, And Mm. the ones that I felt bad that weren't in there were Philip Boykin in Once in this Island playing Mm. uh, Papa Gay, who uh, the the tenderness that he showed um, during the Tamoon song, where where indeed they're wanting their girl and and guilt tripping her too, to be frank, um, about going out into the real world um, was tremendously effective. And yes. also, I would have 
gone for Brandon Uranowitz, um, who was really quite wonderful in Prince of Broadway, which was totally forgotten or ignored or shunned, uh, snubbed, <laughs> robbed, all those words that we use this time of year. Um, very fine as Young Buddy and Follies, terrific as the MC in Cabaret. Uh, wonderful as Molina and Kiss of the Spider-Woman, and uh, I really would have um, uh, put him in there rather than those um, two that I felt less impressed with. Hmm. Hmm. All right. Uh, so the next category we have by Best Performance by an Actress in a Featured Role in a Musical. We have Ariana DeBose for Summer, the Donna Summer Musical, Renee Fleming for Rodgers and Hammerstein's... Uh-huh. <laughs> Sorry, I won't do that joke again. Carousel. <laughs> Lindsay Mendez for Rodgers and Hammerstein's Carousel. Ashley Park for Mean Girls. Diana Rigg for My Fair Lady. So, Peter. Well, uh, again, I would have liked to have seen Kanita Meter in this ca- Miller in this category uh, for Once in This Island, playing the mother, um, the the adoptive mother in um, in this show. Because same thing uh, in that song to Moon, where she, uh, she she's so sad that her daughter is is just destined for heartbreak, and uh, the, only the way a mother can feel when a kid doesn't realize where she's going, and uh, the mother knows from bitter experience and Kanita Miller got all that so I really felt bad that she wasn't in this category um, though um, I really can't resent anybody who's in here uh, I wonder if I, should, I talked earlier about um, the idea of being nominated for and I'm sorry winning because you had an off-Broadway show which were effective too Ashley hmm. Park made a lot of fans in that show k-pop uh, so um, who knows if that'll, but I, 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 I'm really very glad um, and fully expected that Linda Mendez would be in this category. I have been crazy for her since I saw her in that Sherry Renate, Renee Scott show as a backup singer with Betsy Wolf, who's also done well, needless to say. And um, so she has such a wonderful exuberance on stage and um so when i heard she was ironically enough is that something now that i think of it that betsy wolf and she were the backup singers for um what was it called everyday rapture i think anyway yes. the backup and of course betsy wolf originally had the role and, right uh, i've heard a million reasons why she didn't take it but um anyway uh here's linda mendez taking the role uh that uh, betsy wolf uh didn't do and yet there they were they've known each other for a long time now so there's an irony there but um i i i, I had no doubt that she was going to be in this category and um i fully expect that uh, she's going to win by the way michael Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, I re- really liked Lindsay Menzies in Carousel. I um, thought she brought a new take to it. And I it was interesting to hear her uh, sing the role because her voice is not necessarily what you normally hear in that part. But I thought she did a terrific job with it. Uh, Renee Fleming, I was really kind of quite surprised um, at the nomination overall because I, I don't know if uh, her acting is – yet quite up to snuff for Broadway standards. Um, She didn't seem to um, make that much of an impression in her dialogue, but I'm sure that's not why she was nominated. And 
her rendition of You'll Never Walk Alone in itself, uh, I'm, I'm sure that's what got her the nomination. I didn't realize, um, I, I did some research, but she had previously sung that song in at least two very high-profile situations uh, at the Concert for America, uh, which was held at the Kennedy Center on the first anniversary of 9-11, and then also at the Obama inaugural in, in 2011. Uh, so, so I'm sure a lot of people, uh, including probably many of the Tony nominators, know her from those performances, and that may have ha- had a lot to do with uh, her nomination here. Uh, certainly, the song itself is classic and iconic, and and she does a beautiful job with it. Even though um, uh, there again, her voice is is actually not. Uh, completely right for the way the song was conceived. It's really for more of a, a contralto or an alto or, or at least a mezzo. Um, but anyway, um, she does a wonderful job with it. Ariana DeBose as Disco Donna, the, uh, one of the three Donna Summers in the summer musical. Uh, I cited her a couple of weeks ago. I think she's terrific. Um, Ashley Park also as Gretchen Wieners in Mean Girls. And again, I have uh, not yet seen Dame Diana Rigg. Looking forward to that very much in My Fair Lady. By the way, I do believe that if um, Brianna Marie Parham had more to do in Prince of Broadway, uh, she might have uh, cracked the list because the roar she got at the end of the first act of that show when she did Cabaret mm. was astonishing. Uh, the real, uh, the type of applause that you, that means a star is born, but she didn't have that much more to do. She was Queenie and showboat and she was Amalia and she loves me. And that was pretty much it. Everybody else in the show had more to do. Yeah. She was in a couple of ensembles, but I mean, in terms of having solos, um, everybody else in the show had more to do. Now I'm not, quarreling with uh, Prince and Strowman deciding who does what. But all I'm saying is, given how potent she was in that cabaret scene, and she was fine as Amalia and, and Queenie in Showboat as well, uh, if she had more to do, she might have cracked the list. But also we should uh, keep mentioning how generally difficult it is for uh, people – involved in closed shows to be nominated. Uh, it just seems like that generally is true. So, uh, but we have some exceptions. Here. Oh, of course. No, you're, you're right. And I mean, that's one advantage, of course, uh, among the many that Hollywood has, <laughs> you, right. know, you, you could be in a movie that opened, uh, in, in January and they can send you the screener in December and say, uh, for your consideration. So, um, th- there's very little for your consideration, uh, done here. I mean, yes, they can send you the album. Um, I'm, I'm sure there was enough to send out um, to the voters, uh, at least some tracks from the album, all that kind of stuff, but taint the same. Makes you wonder if maybe they will do a for your consideration video in the future. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, so we're done with the acting categories. Let's go on to best direction of a play. Marianne Elliott for angels in America. Uh, Joe Mantello for Edward Albee's Three Tall Women, Patrick Marber for Travesties, John Tiffany, Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, George C. Wolfe, Eugene O'Neill's The Iceman Cometh. So, Peter. 
Well, of course, what's most uh, arresting about this category is that three of the directors had a lot of work to do <laughs> because uh, two of the shows are in two parts, and that, of course, is uh, Angels of America and Harry Potter. And uh, it's really something when you do a four-hour play and you haven't done – and I put this – word quotation marks believe me and you haven't done as much work <laughs> as two other directors uh so because the ice band cometh um at three hours and 50 minutes uh still doesn't uh add up to as much stage time as angels or harry potter so uh so that was uh, you really uh, it's not just a case of quantity too of course there was great quality that was done in all these plays so um i was very happy to uh to see them all recognized i was a little afraid that um that george seawolf might um fall by the wayside but i i was very glad he wasn't uh, denied because i love the fact that he plays the action so close to the lip of the stage which is extraordinarily important to me and i think it's, it's extraordinarily important too to um, people who are watching a four-hour play so they can see all of it and so they can hear all of it. That may sound uh, very uh, matter-of-fact. I mean, of course you're supposed to see, of course you're supposed to hear. But uh, it's easy to tune out when you're three hours and 50 minutes, and his way of doing it really, really, really uh, kept you uh, aware and paying attention, wrapped with attention, in fact. Um <clears throat> What did I miss? Uh, I, I was one of the biggest fans, and there aren't many of us, apparently, of Farinelli and the King. And um, hmm. so I, I, I thought it was a, a quite fine evening, and I love the elegance of it, and I love the loftiness of it. And um, I thought John Dove did a very nice job with direction. So I, I missed his not being in there. Remember how everybody loved Junk at the time, and yet um, Junk was not um, recognized here for direction either, even though uh, Doug use uh, one of our finest directors uh, was involved with it so um, it did the job so that was uh, kind of surprising to me as well but um, you know one really kind of complain at all uh, about the way this one turned out uh, because um, <laughs> when you have three mammoth shows like that that is going to take up 60 percent of the category all right michael yeah, this is um, one of the Brit-heavy categories, uh, which is true of the the Tony noms and the Drama Desk noms and also even the Theatre World Awards. But Yeah, we've been told about that, believe me. <laughs> yeah, you know, no, but I, but I, I did want to say, obviously, we, we welcome these people, and uh, of course they should be uh, as, as open to nominations as the Americans. Uh, people, even, you know, people may comment, comment on the fact that, they are, that there are so many Brits, but uh, I don't think we're going to uh, throw extra points to Americans for their nationality. So that's something I wanted to, to mention. Um, uh, John Tiffany's achievement in just pulling uh, Harry Potter together, I, I think, is is enormous. And uh, I do agree with Peter, because I, I remember you said that before I saw the show. Um, yes, that was really very smart of George Wolfe to keep everybody downstage as much as possible in the Iceman Comet. I also wonder if, probably no way of finding out, if it was his idea or Denzel Washington's to have uh, Denzel deliver his final monologue 
uh, seated, uh, facing directly towards the audience. Yeah, that uh, failed for me too. I will admit that. Yeah. Uh, did uh, it? Yeah. Uh, yeah, because really, uh, those guys wouldn't just sit still. <laughs> they'd come forward. Uh, uh, they'd say, "Turn around. Or why aren't you talking to us?" It, it was it was phony there, but uh, but uh, that's uh, uh, minor in the in the whole scope of things. Go on. I'm sorry. Yeah. And I had uh, forgotten, but there are two or three interjections, like one line interjections from other characters during that mammoth monologue. And and, uh, I think that that made it maybe seem a a little more unnatural. Uh, But it it certainly was a decision. (laughs) It was a choice. And and, um, Joe Mantello, uh, great job with Edward Albee's Three Tall Women. and what a joy it must be to direct those those three actresses, um, and uh, who may, uh, Marianne Elliott. Well, there again, you know, um, um, just a mammoth achievement. I um, was not uh, completely convinced by the set design for that show, uh, so uh, that's one thing I would mention. But um, in terms of directing and, and forward motion and keeping the character relationships very clear, I, I think she she really deserves the nomination as well. And oh, and Patrick Marber, uh, Travesties, um, the first production of it that I'd ever seen, and I think it seemed to me that he caught exactly the right tone for it uh, with with the help of the actors and the designers. It was um, it was so so light and comic for the most part, but then with some real moments that really, really reached your heart. And um, so bravo to him as well. All right. Um, let's talk about best direction of a musical. Michael Arden, Once in this Island, David Cromer, The Band's Visit, Tina Lando, SpongeBob SquarePants, Casey Nicola, Mean Girls, and Butlitcher, My Fair Lady. Peter. Well, uh, I was not a fan of the direction of Once on This Island. Um, I don't think it's uh, – I think the space uh, defeats it, frankly. Um, the scene where Tamoon gets money – I'm being purposely vague here – from uh, from Daniel is something I know <clears throat> much of the audience cannot see and cannot understand. It's it's one of the most powerful moments in the show, and uh, you don't see it. So – I, uh, I, I've been twice now and, uh, I'm very sad to say that, um, I can tell I, the second time, especially when I knew it was coming, I, I watched the audience, um, and I could tell that, uh, only the people who were at, uh, shall we say the, um, halfway mark in the show, um, midfield, if you will, really understood what was going on there. And um, this is more a problem of the space than it is for um, for the direction. I, I don't know what you could have done with that space to make that moment work. But um, so, and I also would have liked to have seen a, a, a different solution for uh, the very end of the show, which has never been one that I've I've liked very much. Uh, what happens to Tamoon, uh, her fate. Uh, again, for those who don't know, I don't want to spoil it, but um, it was much more clear as to what happened in uh, in the original production than it is here. And again, the space is the problem. Uh, you wouldn't have been able to solve that uh, in the space. So, so otherwise, I certainly have no issues with it, um, with the category. Uh, I, I 
I understand the need to fill out the category. And um, while we haven't even mentioned the word frozen during this period of time, um, I, I, I wouldn't have uh, nominated that for directions. So, so I guess it's uh, the category filled out the way it had to fill out in this uh, season of uh, disappointing musicals because the other ones certainly um, didn't need to be in there at all. And um, so be it. All right, Michael. Yeah, I'm going to have to disagree overall with uh, what Peter said about Michael Arden's direction, although um, I'm sorry you missed the money thing. I, I, I seem to remember seeing it. Uh, I guess it, it really does depend on what you said, but where you sit. But of course, it shouldn't come down to that. I do remember mentioning that uh, there's a point during Once on this Island where there's a shadow play and that uh, some of the audience is in back of the of the sheet or, you know, against which it's, it's performed. So they're actually um, seeing it from the other perspective. And that must be, uh, I guess that's interesting, but also maybe problematic in a way. Um, Circle in the square is, um, is a very difficult space, especially when it's completely in the round as it is in this case. Um, so, and it, it adds in some ways and, and, but then, then there are, great challenges so um i i just thought that the overall vision of the show was so wonderful that i'm that i am happy to see him in the category even if uh, it, uh despite those uh things that peter mentioned um have not seen my fair lady yet so can't comment casey nicola i think is one of our best directors especially of uh humorous funny uh musicals and that's certainly true of mean girls tina landau impressed me because i don't think i've ever seen her uh do anything before that was remotely similar to spongebob squarepants um so that was great and david cromer is one of our deservedly most lauded directors i thought he did a superb job with the band's visit except that i think he overdid a little bit the uh slow pacing in some moments to show us how uh, how deadly slow life is in this in this small town uh i and i understand the point of it but i just uh i think um that it the point could have been made without quite so s slow pacing at certain moments um but on the other hand even as it is i think the show is uh, is not a minute more than uh, 90 minutes. <laughs> so it would have been even less. And it, it actually occurred to me that perhaps one reason he paced it so slowly is that it would be at least 90 minutes and uh, so that there would be no um, uh, uh, no comments from audience members about <laughs> not, not getting their money's worth in terms of time for people who see it in those terms. I, I, I almost... Uh, never do I, I i don't i don't think that the time the performance length is one of the least uh things that's that's important to me but um yeah so um uh another really strong category and we'll see what happens all right uh next category best choreography chris catelli for my fair lady chris catelli for spongebob <laughs> squarepants stephen hoggett for Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, Casey Nicola, Mean Girls, and Justin Peck, uh, Ro Rogers and Hammerstein's Carousel. Well, we knew the Carousel was going to be in there, and uh, <laughs> I was very glad it yeah. did. Uh, not, not again, not just for quantity, but um, as I mentioned, for those who missed the uh, podcast, what I loved was putting Billy Bigelow and Blow High, Blow Low 
because Billy Bigelow, not Joshua Henry now, but Billy Bigelow is terrible as a dancer in it. And uh, the point is that he doesn't fit in that world either. That there's no world for him. So, uh, so that's really quite sad. Now, I have no issues with this category uh, whatsoever. Uh, it, um, uh, again, in a season like this, what do you choose? What, what, what do you miss? Well, um, <laughs> again, I'm going to mention Prince of Broadway, though, because certainly there was a lot of dancing in that show. And I guess the reason it didn't get there is because it was mostly a replication of what had gone before. But on the other hand, last year, Hello, Dolly was nominated, and uh, it was pretty much a replication of what we had seen um, back in the original production and all the revivals. Uh, there was no reimagination of um, of any substance that I could see in Dolly. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, I would I would have put uh, Prince of Broadway in there for um, bringing back the memories, just as Dolly brought back the memories. All right, Michael. Yeah, um, I don't have much to say in this category, except I, I'm really glad to see Chris Catelli nominated for two very different types of shows, My Fair Lady and SpongeBob SquarePants. I think he's so talented and uh, very, very versatile, as these two nominations show. Uh, I'm a little surprised by the um, nomination of Stephen Hoggett, just because I, uh, it did not occur to me that the choreography in Harry Potter was that huge a part of it. Um, Casey Nicola, again, Mean Girls, he, he has this style down perfectly uh, for that kind of uh, – there's so much joy and, and humor in, in, in his shows uh, and so much energy uh, from everyone that he that – he, I think he really inspires that in a cast. Um, and Justin Peck, uh, I – just uh, guess that I'm maybe this is wrong of me, but I'm I'm so wedded to the uh, Agnes DeMille choreography uh, that I thought a lot of the uh, choices were not uh, didn't strike me as uh, as that great. But people who uh, know a lot more about dance than I do really seem to love it and. Uh, a lot of it is certainly very beautiful. Um, uh, and the, the cuts in this show, um, for the most part, don't, don't affect the, the, chore the choreography segment. So uh, I think uh, that, that's, that helped him to, to get a nomination because there's certainly a, a, a lot of it. And um, that's uh, – Peter's – your point about Blow High, Blow Low is, is interesting uh, because it can, it can come across as sort of a, just a divertisement. That, that number but if but bringing billy into it uh, mm -hmm. more, more so um i think that i think that did help a lot so that's a good point i wonder if it was jack o'brien who brought billy into that oh well it's possible yeah. sure good sure point. you know um these are the things we never know yeah <laughs> well, <laughs> we'll have to yell it at him at uh at on the red carpet <laughs> was it your idea? Was it your idea? <laughs> hey, good luck in getting answers, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, we're down to the big four. Best revival <laughs> of a play. Angels in America, Edward Albee's Three Tall Women, Eugene O'Neill's The Iceman Cometh, and Lobby Hero, and Travesties. Did I get them all? Yeah, I did. So, Peter, best revival, what do you think? 
Well, uh, I, again, I'm, I'm looking at um, what what isn't there more than uh, what is, because we can certainly uh, talk about uh, who we think is going to win in the weeks to come. But um, I, I would have um, liked to have seen Time in the Conway sneak in there. Um, it, it, uh, and here's Michael's point again about a long lost uh, show, uh, which opened in October, closed in November, you know, just played a handful of performances and that was it. But uh, I thought it was a very effective uh, piece of direction. Uh, it, here we are dealing with a, a director has to deal with so many time frames because it starts in 1919, it goes up to 1937. People change and they had to change. And uh, we don't really know how much the actresses uh, brought on their own, but uh, that director, um, Rebecca Teichman, who certainly is one of our best um, by far, directors i um i know at the tony party i went to last year um <laughs> i got a few points ahead by thinking that she would win the tony for best direction others didn't but i knew she would um she she really is quite marvelous and this was um only her second uh broadway production uh, she certainly has done very fine work off broadway and um it, it was a, a restaging of what she had done at the old globe theater um three years earlier and uh, so she had enough time to ruminate. I don't know if there were many changes or any changes um, in the way that she wanted it done. But um, she was one of our major, major directors. And um, I, I would have liked to have seen her nominated. All right, Michael. Yeah, I definitely agree about that. I think Rebecca Teichman did a great job with that play. And I'm sure that it well, one of the main reasons it's not here is just that it was at the very start of the season and uh, is long closed. But um, the uh, – well, uh, another st strong category here, we, we may not have um, – we may not have the strongest uh, 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 list of new plays, but for revivals, certainly um, the, the, the quality of the of – the, the pieces, the, the, the works, the plays that were revo revived here is uniformly excellent. I'm so glad to see Lobby Hero uh, on Broadway because I really enjoyed it off-Broadway years ago. And Travesties, as I said, was my first experience of the play, so I'm glad it was such an excellent uh, rendition of it. Um, Three Tall Women, <laughs> same thing. Uh, Iceman Cometh, I don't know how many I've seen. I've seen a lot of them, and I, it's just the play for me is becomes almost unbearable um, after not not too long of its length. I I, I just um, I think actors and directors love it because the roles are so meaty and also the the themes. But as far as the the dialogue. Um, and the the incredible amount of repetition and and heavy handedness, I it's just uh, that's just my reaction to almost all of O'Neill, and that's uh, I guess it's not going to change at this point, but um, but certainly in terms of the uh, the level of the acting across the board uh, in Iceman Cometh, I think it deserves to be here and. Uh, on that basis, uh, if nothing else, uh, and. Uh, Angels in America, su such a huge, epic achievement um, by Marianne Elliott. So I, I think that uh, 
that was almost uh, guaranteed to be here even uh, you know if it was even a decent production and it's much more than that all right uh so in the category of best revival of a musical we have my fair lady once on this island and carousel peter what do you think what I think is nothing was left out because nothing else was uh, produced. And um, so um, I remember Stephen Schwartz years ago when um, Rags was nominated for Best Musical, even though it had run less than a week, mm-hmm. saying to me, today all you have to do is open and you get nominated. And that seems to be the case here. Uh, these uh, Again, you know, I, while my love for Once of This Island uh, as a piece, um, Steve Flaherty work. Lynn Aaron's work, phenomenal, phenomenal, phenomenal. Um, uh, this this revival didn't do it for me, but uh, I'm not surprised to see it in there because it's it was so sad in 1995 when the nominees for Best Musical are Smokey Joe's Cafe, Sunset <laughs> Boulevard, and the winner is wait, wait, wait where, where were the other ones? There were no other ones, you know. So you know, so what what you're going to do? It had to be all three, and they they are. Michael. Yeah, and how interesting. Uh, Best revival of a musical is often one of the largest fields. Um, but yeah. it's just so so funny how things play out, isn't it? Um, I, again, I have not seen My Fair Lady, so can't comment. I would absolutely choose Once on this Island over Carousel. I, I, I think Carousel was um, – I had several objections to it in terms of the, the cuts and the direction and, and several other aspects of the production. But, uh, but I am really looking forward to see My Fair Lady. So uh, one of the themes that's, that's continued to come up in the last couple of weeks has been uh, the weakness in, uh, in the season overall. And uh, I think that – uh, what's your opinion on this? That uh, my my thesis on this is that we have so many long running shows right now that there right. are less and less opportunities to get into a theater. So we have Aladdin long running, Anastasia long running, Beautiful, Book of Mormon, Bronx Tale, Chicago, Come mm-hmm. From Away, Dear Evan Hansen, uh, Hamilton. Uh, Hello, Dolly, Kinky Boots, Lion King. Uh, what's next? Phantom. <laughs> yeah, Phantom. Uh, Phantom belongs in that list. School of it? Rock. I'm just going alphabetically through them. School of Rock. Uh, uh, sure. Let's see what else is going on there. Well, I was, uh, Waitress I was, and so... Wicked. So, you know, we have these are things that are carryovers from previous seasons. So there's not many theaters available. Well, a couple of observations on that. I was um, talking about Chorus Line yesterday, running 15 years, and I said, and that was a long run in those days. Yeah, hmm. because, you know, <laughs> who knows how many shows uh, are going to pass the 15-year mark? Um, certainly, um, Phantom Cats um, and Chicago have already, and is anybody going to bet against Wicked passing it or the Lion King passing it? I mean, uh, Lion King's 20 already anyway, isn't it right? Yeah, sure. So anyway, um, <laughs> um there's a, a picture on Facebook um, on one of the uh, musical sites, I think it's for, um, Forgotten Broadway, where they show a picture of um, the Imperial Theater when Call Me Madam is opening there. And next to it is a theater. Um, it, it, there was once a theater there. 
And now, of course, there's an empty space there, a humiliatingly empty space. 45th Street should not have an empty space. It, mm. sh- it should be filled. And um, I don't know if there are any plans to put anything there. The, the rumors of a Schubert Theater going up there uh, turned out to be just rumors, as I understand it. Maybe that's changing. But uh, even when there was a parking garage there, at least it looked like things were happening. It's, 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 it's like seeing a person smile and the front tooth is missing. That's the way that empty lot strikes me there. And to think there was a theater there, and if it were still there, it would be booked now. It would. Um, somebody would be in there. It might not have been a musical house. In fact, uh, it was a radio theater, and I imagine it was small. But um, as New World Stages has proved, there is a market in Midtown, for spa- as the Snapple Center, as it was called uh, for a while there, um, the Fantastics. Who thought the Fantastics was going to run as long as it did there? But it mm-hmm. did because people wanted to see the Fantastics who never wanted to go downtown. Sullivan Street, where's that? I can understand where 50th Street is. I'm on 47th now at the TKTS booth. I know where 50th Street is. That isn't going to be hard, but where's Sullivan Street? So there is a midtown audience for small um, theater shows, and there could have been one if that theater hadn't been torn down. And Lord knows the others, um, supposedly the Empire Theater on 39th Street was really a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful place. And uh, that has been won many, many times. And the Ziegfeld Theater on 6th Avenue, not the movie theater, by the way. People think that movie theater was originally the Ziegfeld Theater where plays, uh, shows like Kismet and Gentlemen for Blondes and, um, <clears throat> and Foxy <laughs> originally played. No. No, not at all. Uh, And uh, these theaters would be used today, so it was really short-sighted. And let's not get started on the Hellinger. Anyway, you get my point. You ever see the horror of uh, the look of horror on people's face when you suggest that they go to BAM or St. Anne's Warehouse? (laughs) Sure, sure, yeah. (laughs) Outside the borough? What are you, crazy? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) That uh, Schubert Theater that was supposed to eventually be rising on the site of that that empty lot on 45th Street, that that was more than rumored. I think it was officially announced in at least one. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it was to be in the, the base of a hotel, I believe. And. But that that's that space has been empty for so long and they kicked out some wonderful old uh, old standby theater restaurants uh, preparatory to build something that still hasn't even been started. It's it's really quite upsetting. All right. Uh, in the best play category, we have The Children, Farinelli and the King, Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, Junk, Latin History for Morons. So, Peter. Well, the big surprise here, of course, was Latin History. Um, many of us feel that if it's one person show, it really isn't a play to begin with. Um, so that, that I, I can't imagine that, um, many people thought that, uh, that was going to go in there, though I will admit that a lot of people said, no, oh, that John Lithgow show, um, might, might sneak in there. Um, I didn't expect that to happen either, but, um, <laughs> again, uh, an example of how so few plays are produced on Broadway now that uh, Latin history should uh, be in there. What surprised me, and I, I have a feeling this has more to do with politics than anything else, is the fact that uh, where's Michael Moore? Michael Moore wasn't mentioned at all. And um, yeah. in, in terms of my surrender, right. which uh, again was a one, well, it wasn't quite a one person show, but for all intents and purposes, of course it was. Uh, and I'm not including the people he brought up out of the audience either. But um, 
was it politics that kept Michael Moore from? I mean, we are um, we are quite liberal uh, in in the theater, so I I kind of imagine that that was really it. But uh, this might uh, again be um, the uh, early in the season opening curse. But uh, I I would have liked to have seen Michael Moore in there, and um, even to get a, a a glance at him in the audience uh, sitting there in his baseball cap. Uh, uh, with his uh, wonderfully, and I don't mean this, <laughs> this is the only word that occurs to me, but wonderful, let's put the two words together, wonderfully goofy smile. Um, and, uh, I would have liked to have seen that, and I, I think he deserved to be there as much as John Leguizamo uh, and, and his play. All right, Michael. Well, Latin history, I think, w- wound up at uh, Studio 54 because there was an empty space in the in the roundabouts uh bookings uh but i am glad that more audiences got to see it than got to see it downtown because i thought it was really terrific for the type of show that it is he he really is a wonderful performer and writer junk um by ayat akhtar i thought was disappoint a rather disappointing um kind of take on the michael milken uh, the whole junk bond situation uh some of it was very interesting but it didn't quite uh, have the oomph that that maybe it should have, especially a, a story about that. Uh, at the time, I, I I I really enjoyed it, but it hasn't really stayed with me uh, very well. Um, Harry Potter, uh, the fans seem to be very thrilled with uh, every aspect of the show, including the script by Jack Thorne, but uh, based on a, I guess a treatment by himself and also J.K. Rowling. Um, Farinelli and the King. I I, I guess that I can join Peter in the minority of uh, the relative minority of uh, people who really, really enjoyed it a lot, and uh, the the writing as well as the other aspects of it, um, and the children. I think perhaps in terms of the quality of the writing alone by Lucy Kirkwood, I think I would say that maybe that deserves the award. And uh, let's. Um, uh, reconfirm that the, the best play award goes both to the producer and the author, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Uh, so, the best musical. And it is 11.15, so uh, we... <laughs> <laughs> the orchestra is playing us off of CBS right now, and we're <laughs> local affiliates are trying <laughs> to get on. <laughs> That's great. Good for you. All right. Uh, the band's visit... Frozen. Oh, we did mention Frozen. Mean Girls <laughs> and SpongeBob SquarePants. So, Peter. Well, the real question for me is, will um, the band's visit win because it's the best musical, which it is, uh, or will it not win because it won't tour as well as Mean Girls or even Frozen? Mm -hmm. So that's the real question for me. Um, I won't say that I had any tears shed for anything that was um, eliminated there, because even though I was enthusiastic about Prince of Broadway, um, I do understand where a retrospective show doesn't get as much... um, traction as a, a new show, although one could effectively argue that um, Frozen is not really quite a new show, uh, even though Lord knows they wrote a lot of uh, new songs for it. But um, it is, after all, pretty much the movie uh, on stage. But but still, that, that has an advantage over Prince of Broadway. But 
um, what were you going to do? Were you going to put in summer in there? Were you going to put Escape to Margarita in there? I mean, you're not going to do that. So, so the category played out pretty much the way we expected it to. Michael. Yeah. Um, well, the band's visit, hands down. I, I, I hope it wins. I think it's very, very important for uh, their to be a place for shows like that on Broadway, uh, more intimate, character-driven, just really intelligent, uh, less, um, not necessarily aimed at the masses. Um, We have so many of that latter type and and so few of of the type that the band's visit represents. So I... um, it started out really well. I, I, I think it's still doing well, and I hope uh, it does win the Tony for Best Musical so that it will be with us for a really long time. All right. Uh, I just saw as a sideline, wanted to uh, get your thoughts and uh, mention that the Drama Critics Circle decided not to award a Best Musical this year. Uh, and what we Matt Tamanini and I spoke with uh, Adam Feldman, the president of the Drama Critics Circle, that uh, evening of the announcement when they decided not to award it. And it wasn't for the reason that uh, I was thinking that they didn't feel like uh, that the season was good enough. It was just that they couldn't come to a consensus on what was really uh, what was really the best this year. So. I didn't know if you guys had any thoughts on that or even followed up or followed what the drama critic circle did. But uh, also – Go ahead, Michael. Well, I'm sorry, but but, but before we start, uh, wasn't that a case where Band's Visit was eligible last year? Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Band's Visit yeah, okay. yeah, was yeah, – it, you know, it's happened in the last couple of years is that the uh, – uh, what would think to be a, an obvious winner was was actually the winner the year before, but uh, so they had uh, uh, they had their voting on the uh, best musical. They had the boy who danced on air was voted uh, Jerry Springer the opera, mm. uh, and uh, Bella an American Tale. Uh, K pop got a lot of votes. Uh, SpongeBob SquarePants got one vote. Uh, a refugee, old stock of refugee love story, Mean Girls, uh, the boy who danced on air. We mentioned Miss You Like Hell. So they had a lot of well-reviewed things. They just couldn't come to a consensus on which was the best of the season, so they didn't award. Uh, but the other uh, thing uh, they did award best play, um, which was Mary Jane, which I think that was well-reviewed by us here, wasn't it? Oh sure, yeah, Mary Jane's very good. So, uh, anyway, it's a, um, uh, you know, with the awarding of Mary Jane, uh, and the best foreign play was Hangman. So it it seems that we're going to see Hangman on Broadway next year. Uh, maybe we'll see Mary Jane on Broadway next year, uh, in some, in some respect. Um, so that is the wrap up of, uh, the things, uh, I do want to mention the most, bizarre insider type of award that was Tony honors for excellence in the theater went to a dry cleaner. (laughs) 
Uh, <laughs> I, I love things like this. I, I do. <laughs> I, I think things like this are great. Um, I'm, I'm so glad that somebody brought this up and said these people should get an award because really, you know, people behind the scenes make these things happen. And yeah. uh, so I think, it, it, of course, it's weird. Um, <clears throat> and, and, you know, we always talk about the fact that Tony's is so inconsistent. You know, here we are talking about featured actor this year, but or lead actor the other. And, you know, so, even Anna in The King and I was in a featured role, uh, category once. So uh, it, it's the categories are so bizarre. But my point is that back in the early days of the Tonys, um, they even gave an award to people who went to the theater a lot. Um, <laughs> just just. <laughs> They just love the fact that they were there. And um, so there, there are all sorts of funky awards, but this really, I mean, who saw this coming? Uh, but it's wonderful that this happened because these are people who do make it happen. Uh, you do need, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you do need people to uh, clean those clothes. You do need them. And obviously these people do a wonderful job, but they wouldn't be even mentioned for the award, let alone getting it. Sure, it's strange, but I think it's great. Okay, uh, in our quick review section, Peter, you got a chance to get over to City Center Encores to see me and my girl. Why don't you tell us about that? Well, yes, it's more than just getting a chance to go over. I made sure that I saw Me and My Girl, which is one of my all-time favorite musicals. And uh, this may surprise a lot of people because uh, even though it had a nice long run here and would have had a lot or a longer run if mm. indeed it didn't have to get out of its theater because a new show was booked for that theater and uh, Me and My Girl was essentially evicted. And in these days where it cost so much to move a show, they said, okay, we'll have to close. As it turned out, the show that uh, was booked into the theater didn't come at all. That was called Annie 2. So it's really too bad that that happened because I do believe me and my girl could have run a year longer if indeed it could have stayed put. Why do I love me and my girl? Is the score sensational? The score is very good. Um, I would say B plus maybe, uh, which certainly is a, a grade many of us would have taken in uh, most of our school subjects. So, uh, But what I love about me and my girl is that most everybody in it, with only one exception, Everybody in it tries to do the right thing. And I love shows where this happens. Here's Bill. Well, let's put it this way. How many times have you, we seen musicals where at the final curtain, uh, the couple gets together and they're supposedly, supposedly going to live happily ever after? Um, you know, frankly, um, if Tony had not got shot in West Side Story, I'm not sure those two would have gotten along as time went on. Um, certainly there'd be in-law trouble with, you know, he killed, a boy like that who killed your brother. So, but so many times, you know, we're just led to believe that the couple who gets married um, is going to live happily ever after. That's the implication. Okay, well here, uh, Bill Snipson and Sally Smith are about to get married. When all of a sudden he finds out that he is heir to quite a fortune and uh, to much upper class privilege. Now, he comes from Lambeth, which is uh, not uh, the finest spot in London from which to come. It's a lower class neighborhood. And we all know that the British have this thing about class distinctions that never the twain shall meet. So what we're dealing with is the high class against the low class. And um, the upper class meets Bill Stibson, and they're not at all impressed with who he is. Now, I will say that Christian Ball in this production 
works so tirelessly and wonderful and his timing is terrific. But I'm sorry to say that um, he and so many others have made this mistake that he comes in to when he when he finds out he's summoned to this castle, that he comes in like a house of fire. Uh, He comes in totally cocky, totally sure of himself. And in a strange way, you almost, 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 almost want him taken down a peg because he's so boorish at the beginning. Okay. When Robert Lindsay did it and won a Tony in a year when Les Mis was winning everything and Cole Wilkinson, after all, was tremendously heralded for playing uh, Jean Valjean. And yet Robert Lindsay won the Tony, which was no small achievement. And one of the reasons he won, I insist, was the fact that when he came into that room, he had his hat in his hand. He was meek and mild. And our hearts went out to him immediately. Because which of us has not felt walking into some room somewhere feeling that the people in that room are better than we are? They may not be, but how many of us have felt that? that indeed we are the, uh, <laughs> we're bringing up the rear. And that's the way he came in, and your heart so bled for him that he had to feel this way among these people. Okay, so me and my ultimate wisdom watching me and my girl saying, my eyes are half closed, I'm going back to 1986 now, and saying, oh, I get it, I know what's going to happen, they're going to try to screw him out of the money in the title, and what's going to happen is he's going to outsmart them because the country rube can outsmart the city slicker. Okay, fine, go ahead and do it. And believe me, I was so galvanized when I could take you to the quarter inch of that stage where Jane Cannell was standing when she said, no, this is his birthright. He is entitled to this. And I was amazed that that was the take on it, that these noble people truly were noble. And the point was, we will educate him. We will make him into something better. Whoa, I'm impressed. Okay. However, because he is going to be now part of the high-class society, his girl, Sally Smith, believes that she has no place in his life anymore. But he won't have it. This is what I love about me and my girl, the loyalty. The loyalty he shows her. He never for a second wavers. Yes, there is Lady Jacqueline, who is the one person in the show who isn't, she's she's not nice. I mean, she's not terrible. I mean, she's the closest thing we have to a villain here in that she's trying to vamp him simply for for his money. That's it. That's all she wants. She's she's certainly a gold digger. And, um, And at one point, he is certainly impressed as she throws her body in front of him. But never does he ever think about abandoning Sally, no matter what happens. And this becomes a bone of contention because they say to him, we will educate you, but you got to dump Sally. And out of the question. And that's what I love about me and my girl. But she doesn't want to stand in his way. So she shows up at a party being boorish as hell, making sure that he's going to say, Sally, that was that was terrible. Oh, you embarrassed me so much. Get out of my life. Not at all. Not at all. He always stays loyal to her, which is why I love that. I love that tremendously. I'm, I'm a person who believes that friendships from way back when are national historic landmarks. 
that indeed friends from our youth should not be cast aside because we so-called have outgrown them mm. or they haven't kept pace. I hate that idea. And this is why I love Bill Stipson and me and my girl. And this is why I love Sally Smith because she doesn't want to stand in his way. And this is why I love the Duchess because she's going to do the right thing. And this is why I love Sir John because he's going to do the right thing too. And yes – you do wind up with a wedding. In fact, you wind up even with three of them, but uh, two of which you care about. But <laughs> to get there, to get to those weddings, there's a lot of honest conflict there. So, so again, I, I just wish somebody would do it the way Robert Lindsay did. But if you're not going to do it the way Robert Lindsay did it, my God, you couldn't ask for anything better than Christian Bull, especially since these things are put together with no rehearsal whatsoever. I mean, it was amazing to me that um, I saw Harriet Harris as um, the Duchess because – <clears throat> the earlier that week, I mean, Friday to be specific, uh, which was the day she had a performance. There she was um, <clears throat> at a press preview of the Royal Family of Broadway, the William Finn musical based on the George S. Kaufman and Edna Ferber play that's going to be at Barrington Stage this summer. And wow, you know, here she is taking time out to do a dynamite rendition of a, a show-stopping type number. Um, and, and yet she's doing Me and My Girl too, and she's obviously has to be exhausted from uh, rehearsing me and my girl in in no short order. So, and uh, again, she is nice at the end of the show <clears throat> when she believes she finally realizes Bill will not give up Sally no matter what, and she is so gracious in the way that she concedes defeat. It doesn't turn out that way, uh, by the way. But uh, but again, nobody does the wrong thing here. Everybody tries to do the right thing, and we should only run into people like this more often in life. So that is why I love, love, love being my girl, and why if you um, – let's see. No, today's the last day. That's too bad. But you know, some people really get to this podcast early, <laughs> and hmm. – uh, I'm t you know, I can tell from the trivia questions. Uh, last week, somebody answered the trivia question at one twenty-six p.m. I mean, yes. good lord! You know, so so if you're listening and you still have a chance to go to me and my girl tonight on May thirteenth, I would urge you to do it um, because it is such a wonderfully satisfying show. I'm seeing the matinee today, and uh, it's interesting to have me and my girl and my fair lady revived in the same season. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, no, because uh, the, yeah, there really is uh, a good deal of My Fair Lady in me and my girl. And uh, to have it fresh in our minds uh, doesn't hurt at all, does it? Right. <laughs> all right. So uh, that's Encore's production of Me and My Girl. Uh, as uh, Peter mentioned, it closes this evening. All right, Michael, you got a chance to see Blues Ballads and Sin Songs, The Legend of Libby Holman, that is written and directed by our friend Walter Willison. So tell us about that. Yes, this was a really wonderful show that I saw for two performances at the Triad uh, about Libby Holman, who's really quite a fascinating character. If, you, if you're not familiar with her, you should definitely read up on her. Really amazing. Born in 1904 and died in 1971. And uh, back in the day, she lived quite open as a lesbian, even though she married three times to men. Um, she also dated Montgomery Clift at one point, and she was tried for murdering her first husband, Zachary Smith Reynolds, the heir to the R.J. Reynolds Tobacco Company fortune. Um, and she was not convicted of that 
murder, but she was never acquitted, so it remained uh, kind of an open question in that sense. Libby Holman was Jewish, but she often affected an African-American look and singing style, and her life was really just filled with tragedies and triumphs. She was in five Broadway shows, beginning with the Garrick Gaieties, and her last show... uh, kind of um, goes back to something we were discussing earlier. It was called the the title of this uh, show that Walter Willison wrote for Lee Horman, Blues Ballads and Sin Songs. And it was at the Bijou Theater, which used to be on 45th Street, but was demolished in 1982. Um, So this was uh, a really interesting show about a fascinating life. uh, And Lee Horwin... um, has an extraordinary, very, very rich uh, contralto voice. I, I, I have not heard many people who sing that beautifully in that register, but she she really did a magnificent job of 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 the singing. And uh, Joel Martin, Joel A. Martin on the piano was a was a really big help. But there were songs by lots of people uh, that uh, songs associated with Lib- with Libby Holman, Irving Berlin, John Latouche and Duke Ellington, uh, uh, Edward Heyman, Robert Sauer, Frank Fain and Johnny Green, Ralph Ranger, Stra- Charles Strauss and Lee Adams. There was one of their songs in there and um, a couple of songs by Walter Willison and J- Jeffrey Silverman. So um, I'm, I'm really glad I got to see it because I didn't know uh, that much about Libby Holman before, but I sure do now. All right, to wrap up this morning's reviews, uh, Peter, you got over to the uh, Bristol Riverside Theater to see Triumph of Love. Tell us about it. Was it a triumph? It was. It was a terrific production of Triumph of Love. Um, Carl Walnow was um, incredibly amusing as uh, the role that um, F. Murray Abraham uh, played on Broadway and Ben Kingsley played in the non-musical film uh, some years earlier. A terrific production all around, uh, wonderfully done. But, you know, this is a theater I had never been to, and I didn't even know what Bristol, uh, Pennsylvania was. And uh, But uh, it's a show that Music Theater International represents, and as a result, uh, I went as a representative because I do a column for them every Friday. And productions of Triumph of Love Don't Grow on Trees. So uh, so I went down there and I was flabbergasted at the theater, which is quite lovely, um, a, a wonderful facility. Uh, the show was marvelously attended. Um, the audience was having such a great time, both in the lobby beforehand at intermission. Uh, <laughs> there was such enthusiasm. There was such civic pride about being there. And here's a town that you can tell was uh, pretty distressed. And what they're trying to do, apparently, this is my assumption, by the way, nobody told me this, but going down the streets, um, seeing antique shops and little art galleries and places like that, uh, they're really trying to say the arts can make this town uh, a special one. And I applaud that tremendously. But I do believe the linchpin is this Bristol Riverside Theater. So. New Jersey Turnpike, exit six, not too far from there. Um, Really, um, by car from New York City, it doesn't take that much more than an hour to get there. Maybe I drive faster than many people. I'm from Boston. But the thing is that uh, I do believe this should be on people's radar. And um, it wasn't on mine. I'm very glad it is. And this will not be the last time I go to Bristol Riverside Theater. Congrats. And there is it is by a river. And it's so nice, you know, to sit outside this cute little park. And um, I I did some nice work while I was out there and uh, I had a wonderful time. I hope the rest of you do, too. 
All right. So before we get on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link that we each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. There's many ways you can listen to us. iHeartRadio plays us. TuneIn plays us. Uh, Stitcher plays us. Google Play. Anywhere that you can find finer podcasts, you can find Broadway Radio. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found at Broadway Radio, uh, as well as the links to some of the things we've talked about today. So, Peter, I know that we had some very <laughs> quick answers to last week's trivia. Did, yeah. So the question was, on a February day in 1952, the owners of a certain London theater knew they'd have to change the name of their playhouse. What was the reason? What was the name they had to change? What was the new name? Well, King George VI died on February 6, 1952, so His Majesty's Theatre had to be renamed Her Majesty's Theatre in honor of the new monarch, Queen Elizabeth II. Carrie Winslow was the first to get it, and as I said, by 1.26 p.m. on Sunday afternoon. Yeah, you got to get up pretty early in the afternoon to beat Carrie, I'll tell you that. <laughs> anyway, later winners included Richard Brennan, James White, Chris McGeehan, Michael Weaver, Phil Bond, Jack Leshner, Alex Lauer, Alyssa Ma, and Brian Kess. By the way, I wonder which will come first. Will it be the renaming of the theater when King Charles III takes over or one of the current princes? Or will first come the closing of its current tenant, the Phantom of the Opera, which has been there since 1986? Isn't that something? Anyway, okay, new question. It's said that all performers lie about their ages. If so, which Broadway legend, one whose life story became a musical, lied about his age the least? All right. So if you know the answer to that trivia question, you can email us at TriviaBroadwayRadio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. I don't stink. I'm not a waste. I'm not all alone in thinking. <laughs>